Hey, Bard listeners. If you live in New York City and love the public library, we need your help. This past fall, our public libraries sustained deep mid-year cuts that forced an end of seven-day service and reduction of our materials and programs. We're now facing more budget cuts for the coming fiscal year. Libraries across the city stand to lose $58.3 million in funding. If these cuts are not reversed, we may have to reduce materials and programming yet again, including further reductions to our days of service. As many as half of all New York City libraries would be open only five days a week. The good news is you can help. Send a letter to city leaders telling them that you support the library. It's easy. It only takes 30 seconds and you can do it now. If you live in Brooklyn, go to BKLYNlibrary.org slash standup, all one word, to fill out the form. If you live in any of the other boroughs, you can send a letter on behalf of Queens Public Library or New York Public Library. Learn how at investinlibraries.org. Thank you so much for your support. We decided to come to the branch because... We still have Metro cards here. Petty Cash was still here. So we came in through the side door, and what a disaster. The force of the water was so strong that it pushed the Snapple machine through the door. Um, the floor was still wet. Um, it was horrible. Like, we couldn't believe it. We just, it was unbelievable. This weekend marks the 10th anniversary of Superstorm Sandy. The storm started on Sunday, October 28th, 2012, and the brunt of the hurricane arrived in New York City on Monday morning. Schools were closed, the entire subway system was closed, and several New York City neighborhoods were put under mandatory evacuation. Much of southern Brooklyn and Queens, lower Manhattan and Staten Island were battered by storm surges. 17% of New York City flooded during Sandy. Nearly 2 million people lost power, some for several weeks. To honor the anniversary of the storm and acknowledge the lingering impacts of natural disasters on our most vulnerable communities, we thought it was a good time to return to an episode from season one. In May 2019, we interviewed Kathleen Fowler, whose voice you heard at the top of the episode, about what it was like to return to Coney Island Library just days after Sandy. Unbelievable, just that feeling of, wow, everything is gone. Everything is gone. No more books down here. All the books were totally damaged. Computers damaged. It's just, where are we going from here? That's a question that many folks ask after a natural disaster. Where do we go from here? Today, we're talking about how libraries are preparing for climate change and how neighbors come together in the wake of a natural disaster. From Brooklyn Public Library, this is Borrowed. I'm Adwa Aduse. And I'm Krissa Corbett-Kavoris. In its most basic form, a library is a building, and a building provides shelter from the elements. On snow days, libraries can be places to warm up. And on really hot days, libraries are often designated as cooling centers. We want people to come to our buildings to take refuge from the weather if they need it. And looking at what happens to a public library during the most severe weather events can help us learn how to better serve our communities. It can tell us how to be useful to a neighborhood during a time of intense need. For us in Brooklyn, that means talking about what happened after Superstorm Sandy. 
It's our most recent major storm. Sandy is still an emotional, devastating subject to talk about for lots of New Yorkers. More than 40 people died in the city, and thousands had their homes or businesses either damaged or just completely lost. Sandy isn't just part of Brooklyn history. The storm is still impacting Brooklynites today, emotionally but also physically. On the day our producer visited Coney Island Library to talk to the staff there about the impact of Sandy, the sound of a jackhammer interrupted her recording. And the construction next door right now, oh that's my not... Gosh. That's, they call it phase two. It is from Sandy. Today they're doing a the sewage. They have to lay another trench starting, he's not sure when, for something else. It's a, wow. But for so, two years. It's going to go on for two years. Coney Island was particularly hard hit by the storm. There was major flooding and power outages. Out of the six Brooklyn Library branches that had to close for repairs after Sandy, Coney Island was the last one to reopen, almost exactly a year after the storm. News 12 was there to report on it. The renovations cost about $2.6 million from city and private funds and from insurance and FEMA money. Residents say the new library is the final remedy to get rid of painful Sandy memories. This was like more important than almost like chicken noodle soup. We've been missing this. This community needs this. The youth in this community need this. For many in Brooklyn, it's hard to capture the full impact of Sandy. Even after library branches reopen, communities still feel the effects of the storm. Some never moved back to neighborhoods that were badly damaged. And for those who were used to taking refuge at the library, whether for intellectual pursuits or to find community or just a warm place to spend the afternoon, suddenly that was gone. Red Hook, another Brooklyn neighborhood, dealt with similar fallout after the storm. We always lived in a storm, you know, in a zone. That's always been. Nothing's ever happened. And since the majority of the people that live, I think like 80% of the population live in the projects. So they're strong buildings. They're New York City built buildings, strong, withstand everything. Like nothing's ever happened. Nerese Pimentel is the library circulation supervisor at Red Hook. I've lived here all my life. This was my library. I went to school down the block in PS15. So I think of Red Hook as a, a, a small town library in a big city because people that come here live here. It's just the bus that comes here. If you're taking the bus, you live here. It's not necessarily going through. Red Hook is in a pretty isolated part of Brooklyn. It's directly south of Carroll Gardens, but it's cut off from the rest of the borough by the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, and it's surrounded by water on three sides. In 2012, when Superstorm Sandy was about to make landfall in the Northeast, residents of Red Hook were warned. We saw the alerts. They're coming down all week. Okay, this is real. This is hitting us. We have to be careful. Oh, it's okay. Nothing ever happens here. We live in these strong buildings. That water's not going to come up. We're going to be fine. Then you start getting the knocks on the doors. You guys have to evacuate. This is serious. This is real. This is going to happen. You guys have to get out. And this is all that we know. So, of course, stay aground. And then the lights went off. And then you start realizing how isolated you are. You can't connect. All the phones is down. The Wi-Fi, the internet was down. Um, and I thought about the library, like, oh, my God, what's going on with the library, the schools, all the stores back here. After that scary night, Nerese got up the next day and went to check on her library. 
She found the lights on, and miraculously, the branch still had electricity and heat. The community needed a place to get information, to check in on each other and warm up during the day. That's what a library usually does for a community, and in those first days after the storm, that's what it continued to do. We didn't take the time to see, wait a minute, are we supposed to be open? Because we started hearing about things not being safe for us. But still, we came, we opened full time. We would forget the library because we're not checking anything in and out. We had food, we had blankets, we had um, uh, workers from FEMA here letting people know if they can apply for certain things. I felt like these are my people. This is all I've known. So when I saw one of, you know, my mom's older friends, I'm hungry. Oh no, we're gonna, it's okay. This is where it's, it became a personal connection. I was fine. I was fine. And my coworkers were fine. So we had to make sure everyone else was okay. That's what we became for about two weeks before they came and told us, you know, it's not safe for you guys to be here. So this is remarkable. The library stayed open for two weeks, not lending books, just being a space for the community. And then they had to close for several months to clean out the mold, to put in new floors, new shelves, new computers. The branch reopened in March of 2013. The impact of a storm like that lingers. For one thing, the physical damage is still present. We still have generators. Um, there's still floodlights. There's still some buildings and some blocks that still don't have their street lights on the side of the buildings, and it's still dark. It's still dark. We have still not 100% have gone back to how we were before that. As Narice walked down Walcott Street and turned onto Lorraine, pointing out the generators, she passed a young patron she knew on the way to the library. The little girl was wearing a paper hat shaped like a pig and was pouting, clearly upset about something. But Narice picked her up, gave her a hug, and asked her what was wrong. She told her, we're going to have fun today, I promise. It's clear that Narice is invested in her community. As a librarian and a resident, she knows firsthand the impact of the storm. And it's not all bad news. The community has changed for the better, too. What's changed, though, is the attitude. What's changed is, okay, things like this can happen. We have to be ready. And I think that after the storm, it was almost like you didn't want it to define the neighborhood or define your experience of living here pre-Sandy, post-Sandy. Like, no, it's a complete reinvention. We're going to see ourselves different. We're not limited to being these Poor people that got, don't know, their neighborhood got destroyed. Not at all. So many organizations. You see these uh, restaurants. And we got so much more out of people having faith that this community would rebuild itself. Like, we're not that. Trust us. We're fine. We're actually better than we were. And don't ever count us out. Unfortunately, big storms like Sandy are only going to get more common as our climate changes. Last year, the National Center for Atmospheric Research published a study in the Journal of Climate that projected hurricanes will become stronger in force with more rainfall. What we've seen for the past 50 years is not what we're going to see for the next 50 years. Our buildings need to be a little stronger. Um, more Sandys are going to happen. This is Mackenzie Kennard. She's the energy analyst for Brooklyn Public Library. It's a pretty new position, one that other big library systems are starting to add to their staff, too. 
It's Mackenzie's job to make sure that the library is keeping up with climate change. So the city is pushing everybody to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050. So we're benchmarking ourselves and keeping track of our energy use, the projects we're doing to reduce that use, but also building to create more sustainable buildings. So when things like Hurricane Sandy or um, the more severe weather that we're expecting actually happens, we have buildings that survive it. We want our branches to be the kind of resource that Red Hook was able to be for the neighborhood immediately after Sandy. With funding from the Governor's Office for Storm Recovery, as well as the Department of Housing and Urban Development, the library is making physical improvements to several of our branches. In total, five of our libraries are going to be getting solar panels. Four of them are a combination of solar panels and rooftop battery storage. Those four branches are in flood zones. Kings Highway, Coney Island, Mill Basin, and Garretson Beach libraries. And so these batteries will kick in anytime there's an electrical disconnect. So it's not just when another Sandy happens, it's if there's a blackout, it'll work too. We're lucky that in Brooklyn we have an extensive system of library branches. These buildings are a vital part of the neighborhood, ready to be of service when they are most needed. But that's not the case everywhere in the United States, right? Thinking about Superstorm Sandy made us think about Hurricane Maria, a more recent and more devastating storm. Maria made landfall in Puerto Rico in September of 2017, and about 3,000 people lost their lives during the storm and its aftermath. Unlike other storms in the United States, Hurricane Maria hit a place that was already lacking sound infrastructure and public institutions like libraries. Uh, the city of San Juan, which is the largest city in Puerto Rico, does not have a library, a public library, since the Carnegie Library closed uh, years ago. This is Francis. My name is Francis Negro Montaner. I'm a professor at Columbia University and one of the leads of Unpayable Debt and Valoricambio Projects. Three years ago, Frances and her colleagues began to study Puerto Rico's debt crisis and its impact on Puerto Ricans. And uh, as, a, as we went along in our research, we realized that one of the hardest hit resources in Puerto Rico had to do with education information libraries. One third of Puerto Rico's public schools are on their way to closure, which means that the number of libraries across the country is drastically declining. That creates what Frances calls library deserts in many parts of the island. In a country where about 50% of the population lives under the poverty line. Many people don't have computers at home. Uh, so they're relying on the school, the school library, or the public library in order to access those resources of computers, information, and books. The defunding of public institutions like schools, libraries, and city infrastructure, that was all a problem before Hurricane Maria. But the hurricane brought those issues to the forefront. So if you look at the, the whole scenario, uh, destruction of resources as a result of the crisis and the hurricane, and resulting weakened infrastructure, uh, which curtails the number of libraries that you can access and the materials in the libraries, then you're talking about an emergency. After the storm, Francis and two of her colleagues, Angel Lopez and Libertad Guerra, wrote a proposal for a new library system, which they called Multiteca Libre. We envision this as a place that has multiple uh, functions uh, that is capable of addressing uh, community needs or engaging with them. Uh, and everything, not only from storytelling, but also to, in case of emergency, perhaps this, these uh, buildings need to be outfitted so they have solar capabilities, Wi-Fi capabilities in case of 
emergency to communicate out. Um, so we envision this as a, as a 21st century library for the Caribbean, you know, in the era of climate change. But when Frances and her team started fundraising, they encountered a lack of enthusiasm, perhaps because the idea of a library seemed antiquated. It was hard to get people excited about it. So Frances shifted tactics. She wanted to show that people in Puerto Rico want and need community spaces and free access to information. That's when the idea for Valor y Cambio, or Value and Change, was born. Frances and Sarabel Santos Negron, her collaborator, found an old ATM and outfitted it with a video camera and a microphone. Then they put the ATM in a public place and invited everyone in the area to come and share stories about what they value. And in exchange of that story, you would get a bill randomly, which went from 1 to 25. There were six denominations. But these weren't standard American bills. These were special pesos, a form of community-supported currency that could be used at over 40 local businesses. Community currency is a pretty amazing idea, one that other countries experiencing economic insecurity have used in order to build trust within a community. Valori Cambio was an immensely popular project. For the nine days this past February, when the project was ongoing, people waited in line for as many as three or four hours to use the ATM. As they waited on the line, people talked to each other. Some had traveled from other cities and towns to use the machine. For a brief period of time, the ATM became a community gathering point and a place where information and ideas were exchanged. And Frances and her team discovered something remarkable in the course of the project. The vast majority of people did not use the currency. Of the about 1,700 bills that were circulated, less than 100 were used. It was clear that people valued what the currency represented more than it, what could be purchased with it, which I think goes back to the also the library project that in many ways people uh, really need and value community. And this is something that's uh, not new, but it was certainly underscored by the experience of Maria. If we remember, the federal, neither the federal government nor the local government uh, came to assist people in the immediate, uh, immediately after the hurricane. And it, that people, a lot of people only managed to survive because of their neighbors. That's something we learned here in Brooklyn, too, after Sandy. We learned that libraries create community and that in times of need, like a hurricane or a debt crisis or sometimes both, community can be the thing that saves us. That was Weathering the Storm, originally produced in May 2019. Since we released the episode, Valor Yicambio's ATM visited New York City. Lower East Side residents shared their stories. We'll put a link to the project's website in our show notes so you can read more about it. Next up is our bookmatch segment. Librarian Cecilia Hayford recommended several fiction and nonfiction books on climate change and natural disasters. So most of these books are climate fiction or cli-fi, which is a subset of speculative fiction um, that deals with a future that is shaped by climate change. I think sometimes it's very easy to get bogged down by the depressing science about climate change, but I think speculative fiction deals with it and says, okay, yeah, this bad stuff is going to happen, but 
people are going to live through it and they're going to do the things that they do. It's just going to be a lot harder. Um, my first pick is Dry by Neil and Jared Schusterman. It's a young adult novel in which Southern California has been hit with the drought so severe the faucets all run dry. There's four characters that the book follows. Um, Alyssa is a pretty normal teenager living in a middle-class suburban neighborhood. Uh, Kelton is her next-door neighbor whose parents are survivalists. Jackie, a homeless girl, is used to surviving on her own. And Henry is an upper-class boy who wants to capitalize on people's lack of water. Um, the four of them band together to search for Kelton's parents' hidden shelter filled with bottled water. And along the way, they end up dealing with growing wildfires and cutthroat survivalists and all kinds of challenges. And my second book is uh, The Carbon Diaries 2015 by Sachi Lloyd. The main character, Laura, is a normal British teenager. She's worried about school. She's worried about her punk band, her parents fighting and boys, of course. Um, but in a world where climate change already has devastating consequences, Britain has decided to unilaterally cut carbon emissions. This book is great um, because she's so normal. Even when things are bad, the normal music and boys' interests don't go away. And my last book is called Superstorm, Nine Days Inside Hurricane Sandy by Catherine Miles. Um, she follows Hurricane Sandy from its birth in the Atlantic Ocean to landfall, and she explores the fortunes of everyday people living on the East Coast. Um, the crew of a ship that's stuck at sea for the storm, which is really scary, and hurricane hunters who fly into the storm to give us a better idea of its potential impact. I had no idea that people did that, and that is just amazing and terrifying to me. <laughs> Borrowed is brought to you by Brooklyn Public Library and is hosted by me and Adjua Adusai. You can find a transcript as well as the full book list on our website, bklynlibrary.org slash podcasts. This episode was produced and written in 2019 by Virginia Marshall with help from Fritzi Bodenheimer, Jennifer Prophet, and Robin Lester Kenton. Our music composer is Billy Libby. Meryl Friedman designed our logo. We are working on an exciting new series for the library that's slated to come out in the new year. So for the next few months, we'll be releasing shorter audio postcards from our branches and rebroadcasts of some of our favorite episodes. We hope you'll keep listening.